can have your Bible open now at Genesis 19. It'll be helpful for you. We're covering a large uh, chunk of scripture today. So it'll be especially good to have it open before you as we make our way through it. We're thinking today in Genesis 19 about the legacy of Lot. The legacy of Lot. There are lots of things that the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't told us to do. He hasn't expressly commanded us to do. He hasn't told us that we have to worship God in particular types of buildings or at particular times of day. He hasn't told us that we have to celebrate his birth on the 25th of December or his death and resurrection during one particular week every March or April. He hasn't commanded us exactly which parts of his word to read or preach from on particular dates in the year. Jesus has, however, commanded us to remember Lot's wife. Luke 17, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. And in commanding us to remember Lot's wife, Jesus is directing us to think about and learn from the circumstances surrounding the death of Lot's wife, namely God's supernatural destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we find recorded here in Genesis 19. Genesis 19, I'd be pretty confident is no one's favourite chapter of the Bible. Were it not for the fact that we believe in the practice of going verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, because the whole Bible is the perfect and complete word of God, a preacher might never choose to preach on this passage at all. It's an embarrassing passage to read aloud. It's awful to read at all. It's a pretty horrible story. But it's in God's word. And the Lord Jesus says we are to remember it and we are to learn from it. The events described here really did happen. Jesus tells us that. Second Peter tells us that as well. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a myth. It's not a story to scare children. It's historical fact. And in fact, were you to visit the region near the Dead Sea today, where we believe roughly Sodom and Gomorrah would have been, you would still see and smell the evidence of a supernatural cataclysmic event thousands of years ago that involved fire and sulfur raining down on an entire region. But Genesis 19 is as much about a believer, Lot, as it is about unbelievers receiving God's judgment. I mentioned this when we last uh, looked at Lot a few weeks ago, Genesis 13, But the New Testament refers to Lot more than once as righteous, as a believer. Genesis 19 testifies to his friends about just how much of a mess even believers can make of our lives. And so Jesus says we are to remember this passage and learn the lessons of it. And so I want first of all today for us to sort of walk through the story to to make three observations about Lot. As we look at the story, and then having done that, the last point of the sermon will be just lessons for us from the passage. So first of all, three observations about Lot, and then some lessons for us. So first, uh, firstly today, as we look at this story, we see that Lot sits in the seat of sinners. Lot sits in the seat of sinners. Genesis 19 and Genesis 18 are very intentionally, well, it's one, it's one big story, but they're side by side in our Bibles and they are, they're worth comparing and contrasting. There's a few points of contrast that we're, we're supposed to notice. 
from Genesis 19 and Genesis 18. The two chapters begin the exact same way. Uh, They begin with Abraham and Lot, each receiving unexpected visitors at unexpected times of the day. Abraham uh, in the heat of the day, Lot in the evening when people were probably about to turn in for the night. Abraham is sitting outside a tent in chapter 18 verse 1. Lot is also sitting somewhere in chapter 19 verse 1. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. And we need to understand the significance of that phrase in the gate, sitting in the gate of Sodom. Abraham is sitting outside his tent because he's in the promised land. And God hasn't yet given to Abraham, at least legally, in the eyes of the world, any land in his name. He doesn't own any towns. He doesn't own any cities. He doesn't own so much as a field. Even though God has told him it will be his land. And so Abraham is still sitting outside a tent. Lot, on the other hand, had taken himself off to Sodom all those years before. Remember, he had lifted up his eyes and looked at the land around Sodom and Gomorrah and said, that's where I want to be, far more fertile, far better for, <coughs> for farming and for making money and for settling down. So off he went. And the fact that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom, friends, tells us that Lot has really made it in Sodom. In the ancient world, the city gate was something like the local town council building for us. It was where the local leading uh, businessmen or politicians or whoever it was would meet together. They would have discussions. They would make decisions about the running of their town. So Lot sitting at the city gate, friends, he's not there just to pass the time. This is not like you or me sitting, eating our lunch on a park bench somewhere. He's there because he's made it. He's amongst the movers and shakers, the elite, the accepted, the decision makers in Sodom. He's landed. He's respected. Although he entered the city a foreigner, an outsider, all those years ago when he left Uncle Abraham, now he's very much an insider. He's done well. He's made his money. He's married with children. We can only assume he married a Sodomite woman since there was no mention of a wife when he left Abraham. And you remember, this was always Lot's goal back in chapter 13. He looked up at the Jordan Valley, and that's where he wanted to go. And now he is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's made it. But to sit in the gate of Sodom is to sit in a city of wickedness. Genesis has already been warning us a few times About Sodom, Genesis 13, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They were infamous. They had a reputation for what went on in their city. We've got a hint in the previous chapter as well of what's coming. Genesis 18, verses 20 to 21. God says to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Sodom had a reputation. Sodom was known the world over for the depths of depravity and wickedness that went on there. And yet that is where Lot chose to go. And he's sitting literally right in the middle of it. He's chosen to go where the psalmist warns us not to go. Psalm 1. To stand in the way of sinners. To sit in the seat of scoffers. 
Second Peter 2 verse 8, we read it earlier. Peter says, Lot was tormenting his righteous soul by doing this. Lot had to keep telling himself, reminding himself why we're here. It's a good land to raise a family. It's a good place to make money. Comfortable living, beautiful climate. And yet part of his soul was constantly in misery. Living surrounded by all of this wickedness. These weren't God's people. These were God's enemies. This wasn't a place where God was worshipped. This was where sex and money and materialism was worshipped. And of course friends the Bible says that although believers are in this world. We're to remain distinct from this world. That we're not to just chase after what the world chases after. That being the be all and the end all. Expecting it to make us happy. We're not to live as though money and materials and mammon are all that matters. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. And so the contrast between Abraham, who will establish God's people and, God, and, and the light of God's people and the holy living of God's people, that's all to be established right next door to Sodom so that the people of Sodom could see this is how it's meant to be. Instead of being there, Lot has chosen to go and plant himself right in the middle of Sodom. He is sitting at the city gate, not seeking first the kingdom of God. So Lot is sitting at the city gate. But the other thing to notice about Lot is that he lingers instead of legging it. He lingers instead of legging it. At the start of the chapter, Lot is in a terrible hurry. These two visitors appear And uh, we know, of course, that these two men are, in fact, angels. The text tells us that. The same two angels that had spent time with Abraham previously. And Lot is falling over himself to get these two men under his roof to to look after them. Verses 1 and 2 say that he rose to meet them, bowed before them, uh, tells them to come back uh, for bed and breakfast at his house. Uh, The two visitors sort of... They talk about we'll spend the night in the town square as if they're politely declining Lot's invitation. We'll see what happens. We'll spend some time here. Someone's bound to take us in is what they're saying. But Lot presses them. He urges them. Why does he do that? Well, partly this shows us that Lot is a righteous man. It shows us that Lot, like Abraham, takes seriously the duty of hospitality for strangers this was something that was just accepted as the norm all through the ancient, the ancient Near East. This wasn't unique to Abraham. Uh, no matter who you were, pagan or, or whoever it was, you welcomed people in. You looked after visitors in your city. Um, you provided for them. And that's what Abraham did for these men back in chapter 18. And that's what Lot is going to do for them here. Uh, verse 3 says he made them a feast. He, he pulls out all the stops. He He gives these men the best dinner he can possibly give them at short notice. And we're meant to see that this is in contrast to the rest of the citizens of Sodom. No one else shows any interest in these visitors. At least no interest in looking after them. And as I say, even pagans knew to do this. But no one in Sodom is interested in looking after these men. Except Lot. So he's in an awful rush at the beginning. But what's striking is that as the story unfolds and as the seriousness of the situation unfolds, Lot is in less and less of a rush. 
There's this whole dreadful incident when all the men of Sodom come to his door in verses 4 to 11. And you'll notice the text emphasizes uh, in verse 4 that they all came, every adult male in the town came. And they come to carry out this most despicable, unspeakable deed with Lot's two visitors. The the euphemism is clear there in verse 5 that we may know them. And that's a euphemism often in Hebrew for sexual activity. And that's the other reason why, of course, Lot was in such a rush to get these men out of the town square. Because Lot knows what happens in Sodom when two visitors, unsuspecting visitors, come to town. And so the two angels rescue Lot from this gang of rapists. And they warn him in verse 13 that they are about to destroy the city. They say the outcry against Sodom has come up to God. His patience has run out. Sodom is going to be totally destroyed. And so the angels are urgent with Lot. Look at verse 15. Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But then look at verse 16. He lingered. He lingered. Lot just could not tear himself away from this city. And even when they're on their way out of the city, he he talks about, can I just go to this city? Let's not go all the way up to the hills. Can we just go and stay in this city instead? There's no urgency in Lot at the crucial moment. This city where he had enjoyed good food and a nice house where he had made it. It had just all been so good. Did it really have to come to an end? Even in the face of urgent warnings from heaven sent angels. Lot lingered instead of legging it. See friends this has often been said about this passage. Lot had chosen to go into Sodom. But now Sodom had gotten into Lot. The smell of Sodom's food. The taste of Sodom's success. The comfort of Sodom's houses. Lot and his family who we'll think more about shortly. They'd been breathing it all in for so long that they just did not want to let go of it. And perhaps some of you here or listening in online, you have been warned about your sin time and time again. Some of you have been warned about God's judgment time and time again. Some of you have been warned to flee to Jesus Christ as your refuge time and time again. But you're lingering You're looking back with deeper affection for your friends, your lifestyle, your opinions, your comforts, knowing that following Christ will mean that to some degree those things are put in second place, if you can even hang on to them at all. Jesus says to you, remember Lot's wife. What happened to her? She was warned to flee. Don't look back. But she did look back, verse 26. And she became a pillar of salt. And what that means is that most likely she didn't just have a quick glance over her shoulder. She stopped and she looked back with longing in her eyes for the place that she loved. And she stood there so long that the fire and brimstone as it made its way across the city of Sodom engulfed her and turned her to ash. And if you keep lingering rather than repenting. If you think as Lot's sons-in-law did, that this is all a joke. 
If you're too attached to the pleasures and pursuits of this damned sinful world, you will be swept away when the judgment of God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Lot lingered instead of legging it. Final observation to make about Lot is that he is saved by the sheer grace of God. Saved by the sheer grace of God. Genesis 19 not only provides a contrast with chapter 18, it also quite intentionally reminds us of the flood in the days of Noah. And there are actually quite a few similarities in the two stories. There's the warning of coming judgment. There's the entire destruction of all living things. Granted, of course, the flood was global, whereas the destruction of Sodom was regional. But just notice the language, chapter 19, verse 25. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. So total destruction of this place. Like in the flood, everything and everyone was destroyed. And that's maybe providing for us a bit of a contrast with the fact that it was every man in the city who came to Lot's door trying to get their hands on Lot's visitors. Every single one of them and their wives and their children and their cities and their crops and their land was destroyed. And there actually have been, uh, you can, I'll give you more information about this afterwards if you're interested, but there have been non-Christian archaeological excavations done in that area, the conclusions of which in writing in an official report said, all the evidence here suggests that some kind of cataclysmic event happened several thousand years ago that raised this place to the ground. Everyone was destroyed and the evidence remains to this day. Notice also the wording of verse 24 in relation to, in terms of reminding us of the flood. It says, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire out of heaven. At the flood, it was water that rained down. Here it's fire that rains down. And so these wicked inhabitants of Sodom, who did not welcome strangers, who instead wanted to rape and abuse them, and who likely sinned habitually in all kinds of other ways against their holy God, are completely wiped out, completely destroyed. But there's another way that this passage reminds us of the flood. If you look at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God remembered Abraham. Because he remembered Abraham, he saved Lot. Genesis 8 verse 1 says, God remembered Noah and so saved him and his family. What had Abraham done in Genesis 18? He had pleaded with God in prayer. Knowing that Lot was in Sodom, Abraham had asked that if there were even 10 righteous in Sodom, that God not destroy the city. There weren't 10 righteous in in Sodom. There was just Lot. And even though Lot had made foolish choices, even though he had sat with sinners and lingered instead of legging it, God was gracious. God heard Abraham's prayer. God rescued Lot. And Genesis 19, 16, in some ways, friends, it's a perfect picture of our salvation, the salvation of anyone from our sins. Look what it says, Genesis 19, 16. He lingered. So the man seized him and his wife and his two daughters by hand, the Lord being merciful 
to him and brought him out of the city. These two angels with supernatural strength grab Lot and his wife and his daughters by the scruff of the neck as it were and lead them away from danger. And you might say friends that spiritually speaking that is exactly what God has done for every one of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we ever call out to God in repentance he has grabbed us by the heart so to speak. He has changed our hearts by the power of his spirit. We had chosen sin. We would have chosen to linger on in this wicked world. Indulging in our sins. But God as Paul says in Ephesians being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Saved us by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what God can do for you today if you stop lingering. And cry out in repentance of your sin. So in the midst of this dark, awful, awkward chapter, nonetheless, here's God's mercy and grace shining through. So there's the story in, in, a, in a whistle-stop tour fashion. Lot sitting in the gate, Lot lingering instead of legging it, and Lot saved by, by God's sheer grace. I want to think in the time that remains about uh, what well, we should learn from this, lots to learn about the consequences of sin. Lots to learn about the consequences of sin. The first thing that this passage teaches us, friends, is that God is patient with, not absent from, our wicked world. God is patient with, not absent from, our wicked world. I mentioned how already how Sodom reminds us of the flood. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, These two incidents, the the flood and the destruction of Sodom, they're like two blaring sirens. They're like two bright red lights warning our world today that God's final judgment is a certainty. Uh, you You can turn, if you like, to Luke chapter 17 for a moment, verses 26 to 30, or you can just listen as I read it. But Luke 17, verse 26, Jesus says, Just as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, this is Jesus speaking again, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be, Jesus says, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Peter gives us the same warning. We read it earlier in Second Peter 2. He says, the patience of God should not be mistaken for the absence of God or the ignorance of God. Our nation can gather in London and celebrate multi-faith culture and hold the traditional religious ceremony for the king's coronation and Imagine to ourselves that there are still whole eras to be lived, the Carolean era, or however many other eras we imagine there might be, and everything will just keep going on forever. The reality is the Son of Man will come in judgment, and there might not be a Carolean era or any more eras. He's not negligent, he's patient, he's not absent, he's present. And he is merciful. He is merciful. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. And escape the judgment to come. 
that that judgment is coming. And it's coming in a world, friends, that just like Sodom tolerates and celebrates the most brazen of sins. Sodom was so far gone that homosexual gang rape of strangers had just become the norm. That's how they did it in Sodom. Unless we think proudly to ourselves, I'm nothing like that. Those things aren't even temptations for me. Jesus also warned that the day of judgment will be worse for those who may not have committed the sins of Sodom, but who are proudly, arrogantly rejecting the message of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty three, And you, Capernaum, Capernaum being a town where Jesus had preached and healed and been there in person. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom than for you. There were no homosexual gang rapists in Capernaum. But the arrogance and the pride and the self-righteousness of Capernaum rejecting the message of Jesus Christ is worthy of worse judgment in the eyes of God than the judgment of the comparatively ignorant Sodomites. And so if we're clean living, charity giving, well presented, polite Ulster Protestants or Roman Catholics or anything else, we still need Jesus. You need his grace now before his judgment comes later. So that's the first lesson that we can take from uh, this passage that God is patient with, not absent from our wicked world. Secondly, we learn from this passage that even believers have a lot to lose. Even believers have a lot to lose. Again, Lot was a believer. He had been by Abraham's side in those early years when Abraham left the land of Ur and headed toward the promised land and uh, obedience to God's call. But then Lot had decided, I can still be a believer even if I live in that kind of place with those kinds of priorities. And he'd made it, humanly speaking, as I mentioned earlier, there he was. He had maybe a seat with his name on it in the gates of Sodom. But where is he by the end of the chapter? Lying in a cave, drunk out of his senses. He seems to have been so disturbed by all that he experienced that he was too afraid to, uh, to, uh, to live in the city of Zor, the city that he had begged the angels to let him go to. He was too scared to live there, so he goes out and he lives in a cave with his two daughters. He ends up with no land, no wife, and daughters who have clearly been thoroughly damaged by their father's decision to raise them in Sodom. What happened when the Sodomites came to Lot's door that night? Yes, he was courageous to protect his guests. But in a moment that we can only assume was blind panic and desperation, he actually offered the Sodomites his own daughters. And I wonder, did that not have some kind of warping effect along with a, life, a whole lifetime lived in Sodom? Did it have some kind of impact upon his daughters before they carried out this disgusting scheme in the cave? The daughters each become pregnant And even when their children are born, both of them the result of incest, these women seem to almost glory 
In the circumstances of their conception, the first daughter names her son Moab. Moab means from my father. Was this girl proud or defiant somehow over what she had done? The other daughter names her son Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. Again, a sort of a darkly ironic choice of name. Moab became the patriarch of the Moabites, who for much of their history were bitter enemies of the Israelites, the people of Abraham. And the same could be true for the Ammonites, the sons of this child Ben-Ami. They became bitter enemies of Israel, God's people. That's the legacy of Lot. And what a sobering warning it is for all of us. Once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You can never lose what you truly have in Jesus Christ. But you can still make so many foolish decisions that you almost lose everything else. And in particular here, perhaps I should say it, particularly in the week when the men are about to begin studying a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Lot is a warning to us husbands and fathers and to every church member who has vowed to pray for the nurture and training of our children. Our choices matter. Family worship matters. Where we allow our children to go, either physically or online, matters. Men, our leadership matters. And what our families need more than they need us to treat them to this or let them do that or experience this is to lead them in the worship of God and in the instruction of his word. And boys and girls, when your parents say no to certain things or when they limit your screen time or talk to you about what you're doing online or where you're going or who you're meeting or when they tell you to go towards other things like your Bible or worship or see why, listen to them and obey them. And thank God that you have parents who love you enough to not always give you everything that you want. And who pray for you and who tell you the good news of the best life you can have. Not by reaching a certain salary or having a certain job or sitting in a certain place. Lot had all of those things and look what happened to him. But the best life is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. One final lesson to learn from this sad passage, and very briefly, is that even in darkness, God can shine light. Even in darkness, God can shine light. This is a a long, hard, sad read of a passage. It's a passage with a lot of darkness, but there are a couple of chinks of light. We saw one already back in verse 16. The man sees Lot and his family, the Lord being merciful to him. In the midst of Lot's lingering, God was gracious and rescued him. And even right at the end of the chapter, friends, in this horrible incident with Lot's daughters in the cave, with New Testament eyes, with New Testament eyes, we can see a ray of hope. One of Lot's two sons via incest is Moab. As I've said, Moab was often an enemy of Israel, but not always. And our young people might remember from their CY meetings this year that there's quite a famous believer who was from Moab, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And tucked away later in the Old Testament is the story of how Ruth the Moabitess became the wife of a son of Abraham, 
Boaz. And Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David, who himself was the great-great-great-great, add a few more greats, grandfather of King Jesus, the son of David, the son of Ruth and Boaz, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And so you see, friends, even in a world darkened by sin, even when human legacies have turned terribly messy and ugly, God can overrule for his good purposes. God can redeem. God can restore. God can give us a new legacy through his grace in Jesus Christ. And so to the proud self-made types and even to Moabites and Sodomites, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon to repay each one for what he has done. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they, they may have the right to the tree of life. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Amen.